guess I didn't quite get my, get my fill last weekend. Well, actually, I, I probably did. I think we probably all um, got our fill, and then some. And then after we had that, we said, oh, wait, there's pie? <clears throat> Better have some of that, too. Well, it's true that many of us could probably do something more useful with our Thanksgiving weekend than just eat ourselves into a turkey coma. There's something about feasting that's biblical. Feasting, when done in a community or in a family setting, when done with an attitude of thanksgiving, it draws people together and it draws people toward God. Here's the thing, though. With Thanksgiving, it seems like no matter how much you eat, there's always going to be some leftovers, right? Probably because your mother said, I know we didn't need any more salad, but I really like this one, so I made it too. And here's some chips. We can't do without those. There's always an abundance. And here's the other thing with a feast, like Thanksgiving. You might feel awkwardly full by 8 o'clock in the evening, and you might still feel awkwardly full the next morning and throughout the next day. But it's going to happen, you know, sooner or later that you're going to be hungry again. You'll need to eat again. You'll need to go on eating to provide your body with proper nourishment, no matter how full you feel at 8 o'clock on Sunday or Monday night of Thanksgiving weekend. Now, the Apostle Paul, well, he doesn't mention food specifically in this passage. He does mention what it is to be, to be filled, in this case, with, with all the fullness of God. Although there, there is still something, something pretty relevant there. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And as is our custom, we'll stand for the, the reading of our sermon text. Ephesians 3, beginning at 14. The Apostle Paul's words to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. You may have a seat. So what are your priorities? Like, big picture priorities or, or life goals kind of things. This is beyond the scope of our sermon this morning, but it's important to think deeply about this, especially those of us who are, who are of a younger generation. Like, like, what is it that you want to do with your life? What are you doing in order to, to make any of that happen? Now, please hear me well. I'm not advocating the kind of popular, self-esteemy, you-can-be-anything-that-you-want-to-be children mindset. Here's what I am advocating. It's twofold. Do your, do your stated priorities line up with your practiced priorities? If you say faith or God or the Bible are top priorities in your life, 
But things like prayer, study of the word, church attendance and involvement always seem to be the first things you neglect or, or, or let slip in favor of sports or entertainment or work or whatever. Then, then your true priorities have kind of been revealed, haven't they? If you say family or my kids or my marriage are really high priorities in my life, but you never seem to be able to unglue yourself from the screen, whatever type it is, to pay attention to those that are loved ones in your life, if that's the case, then your true priorities might have just been revealed. Priorities are not really about what we say, but about how we live. Number two, do your stated priorities line up with what God has revealed as of supreme importance? Scripture says, don't store up treasures on this earth. Seek first the kingdom. Don't be conformed to this world. Learn to be content in all circumstances. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pray continually. Lots of other things. Are we conforming our lives to these realities as revealed by God? Or is the day-to-day conduct of our lives, does it just prove that really our actual priorities as lived out aren't that much different than most people in our wider culture. Ultimate priorities are not so much things we choose as things that we align ourselves with. And I know that smarts a bit. And please understand, friends, I'm not standing over you in judgment. I'm standing under the judgment of God just as much as anyone else. And I'm just trying to point out some realities that we all seem to face in our culture as we seek to be faithful. Why am I going here to begin with, right? Isn't isn't this kind of wandering a bit far afield from our text? Well, not really. See, one of the areas where what we really think of as the most important priorities, one of the areas where that's revealed is in the way we pray and in the things that we pray for. That reveals what we think is truly important. What are our prayers about, primarily? Our need of material things, health concerns, our emotional states— Scripture tells us to pray about these things and any number of things, but the great model prayers of the New Testament, of which our text today is one, they don't spend a whole lot of time focusing on those sorts of things. As worthwhile as it is to bring all our concerns and requests before God, we have to let Scripture set the tone and the agenda for our prayer lives. And so Paul begins his prayer for this reason. Well, actually, he tried to get there at the start of the chapter, but then he got sidetracked talking about the mystery of God and how it was revealed and that Jews and Gentiles could be one body in Christ. And so he made a little bit of a bunny trail, and now he's trying to get back. Okay, yeah, I was going to pray for the Ephesians. And now he gets back to that. Most commentators note that Paul bowing his knees to pray is worthy of mention. It was more typical to pray standing up in Paul's uh, particularly Jewish culture. Kneeling, or perhaps uh, full-out prostration, like with your head on the ground as well as your knees, that was a sign of deep humility and also meant that he was, he was really sincere and really in earnest about what he was praying about. He isn't just offering up a few words of prayer out of a sense of obligation or just to fill some space. He's deadly serious. It's of the utmost importance that the Ephesians get what he's praying for. So what is the actual content of his prayer? Paul begins by praying to God the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That is, derives its identity. 
Now, there's some disagreement about, amongst uh, translations and scholars, and depending on what you have in front of you, some translations say, uh, from whom every family in heaven on, and on earth, and some say the whole family. Grammatically speaking, every family it probably makes a bit more sense. But given Paul's thematic concerns throughout so much of this letter for the unity of the whole family of God, uh, the whole family taking its identity from God seems to make sense in that context. In any case, there's an emphasis on being drawn together into a place of unity that we derive from our relationship with God that is the focus and the start of Paul's prayer for these people. Now, the prayer itself is structurally complex. It's kind of one, as Paul does, one big, long, run-on sentence. And it's not easy to determine which of these various points of the prayer are the main points and which of them are the sub-points, or if one flows from the next to the next, or quite exactly how it all relates. And scholars and translations do it somewhat differently. But I'm going to break the passage down into two sections. Paul prays, first of all, that the Ephesians would be certain things. And then following that, he prays that the Ephesians would know or understand or comprehend certain things. It's important to note that the first cluster of requests, the requests about being, all flow from God's overflowing generosity, the riches of his glory. This is an important and fundamental aspect of God's character that we should all keep in mind when we go to our Lord in prayer. Right? We're not going to God in prayer trying to twist his arm or manipulate him or somehow otherwise convince him to give grudgingly out of a scarcity mindset. We go to God praying that he will give out of his overflowing generosity, his riches in glory. If we're praying for things that we know to be God-honoring and to be within the will of God, we're not praying trying to convince a stingy God or a miserly deity to dispense us a bit, a little bit, in some grudging fashion. Now true, it might not be simple and straightforward when we see the answers to those prayers. Granting these requests might mean that he first has to do some deep heart work of conviction in us, or or of our sin, or he might have to do some work that leads to us renouncing the idols that we've placed far too much hope and emphasis on. Granting our requests might mean he has to bring us through some challenges and knock some rough edges off of us, but they are still granted out of his overflowing bounty and generosity. We might give sometimes out of a scarcity mindset, but God never does. He never has to worry that he's going to run out. Paul prays that out of God's glorious riches, that the Ephesians would be strengthened with power inwardly through God's Spirit. Biblical Christianity has always been about inner growth or strength or power, not outward, not political or, or cultural or financial power, but inward power that comes from God's Spirit at work in us. In fact, that kind of inner core strength from God's Spirit being poured into us is fully compatible with what might otherwise look like outward weakness, even poverty, It certainly looked that way for Jesus. It certainly looked that way for many of the apostles and many faithful Christians all throughout history. And again, Paul goes like an arrow to what he considers the most important for these believers and for us, the inner life. Paul doesn't begin by praying for a change of their circumstances in any way. 
Although no doubt, these Ephesians had just as many struggles, financial, family, health-wise, whatever, as any of us do. But that's not where Paul immediately goes. He prays for inner strength to stand in the midst of these difficulties. And as challenging as this sort of praying might be to some of our kind of contemporary prayer warrior mindsets, Paul doesn't just speak words of victory or claim the promises of God for these things. Rather, he prays that God's power would empower inwardly these people to stand up in the midst of any sort of hardships that they're facing. He prays that they would stand firm. Of course, later on in chapter 6, we're really going to get that as he talks about the armor of God. But that's that's in the background still here. Now, so far, so good. Then Paul prays that these Ephesians Christians, he prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. And we might be sitting there thinking, well, that's a bit odd, Paul. If, if these people are Christians, and he certainly seems to be addressing them as such, why does he pray that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith? Isn't, isn't that what happens when you become a Christian? That Christ indwells you through his spirit? Doesn't that, isn't that the truth already then? Why, why would he have to pray for this? The, the question is, in what sense is Christ dwelling in their hearts and in ours? Is he dwelling in their hearts as, as a tenant or as a guest or a renter? Or is he dwelling in their hearts as the rightful owner? We've all been tenants or guests or renters, and we might have felt that we were, we were well taken care of, we experienced good hospitality, but even the most generous landlords are going to have rules of some sort, right? Like, you know, you've got to pay the rent on time, and, you know, don't, no pets, no smoking, no wild parties, don't sell any of the furniture or the appliances, don't wreck the place, don't modify it. We've all, we've all known how that works. But if you own your home or the place where you're staying, you can do whatever you want. You can get rid of that old, ugly, stained carpet. You can sell that ugly harvest gold washer and dryer set from the 70s that doesn't even work right anymore. Get rid of that thing. Get a decent one in there. Paint those, get rid of that awful wallpaper and put some decent paint on there, right? If you own the place, you do what you want with it, and it's right to do so because it's yours. So the question is, does, does the Lord dwell in our hearts as a guest or as the rightful owner? Paul wants Christ to dwell in their hearts and in ours in the latter sense, as the rightful owner who has freedom to do what he wills, to clean out the things that need cleaning out, to fix up the things that need fixing up, to knock out that wall over there, to get into the dark and musty corners where maybe it would be just more convenient to ignore. He wants God to dwell in our hearts in a way that allows him freedom to do what he wants once he's taken up residence. And then he prays that the Ephesians and and us would be rooted and grounded in love. Now, you don't have to be a botanist or have a degree in biology to know the purpose of roots on a plant, right? The roots of a plant basically have two purposes. The first purpose is the roots hold the plant securely, especially when we think of a large plant like a tree that grows tall and upright. It needs strong roots so that it stays growing tall and upright and doesn't just fall over. The other purpose that roots serve, or that 
That's how the plant drinks in its nourishment, water in particular, from the soil. The roots go into the soil, they suck the water out of the soil, and they nourish the plant. This is basic grade school stuff, right? I'm sure we all learned this. Our teacher brought in, I remember being a kid, go home and pull up some plants somewhere and we'll look at the roots, right? There's tap roots and there's fibery roots. You remember this. You don't have to be a genius to know this. A plant with a stable and robust root system will have the strength to stand up to storms and it will have the nourishment available to it to stand up to drought. Now the humble alfalfa plant it's grown, some of you from the farm, right? You grow this, you swath it, you bale it to feed to the cattle. That's what you do. This plant is a master of the root game. The, the humble alfalfa plant can put down roots easily, 10 feet down into the ground, searching for roots. But there have been documented cases where they go down close to 50 feet of roots, searching for some groundwater down there to keep the plant alive in a dry season. That's some serious roots. So the question is, are we that serious about putting roots down into God's love for us? Are we so sure and secure of his love for us that we can remain vibrant in our faith in times of sickness or loss or opposition? Are we able to keep drawing from the well of God's love to be sustained through times of difficulty or hardship of any kind? I ask these questions because it's important that we think about these things. But we remember, these aren't just attitudes or convictions we can kind of whip up a little bit in ourselves or, or do on our own. Right? If that was the case, Paul wouldn't necessarily have to pray to God that this would be so, and neither would we. These are gifts that God gives us, and so we must continue to pray for them. Fervent prayer, of course. But always prayer that recognizes that God gives according to his riches. So having talked about the things that he would like them to be, strengthened inwardly, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, that they would be suitable dwellings for Christ, that they would be rooted and grounded in love, then he moves on to prayers that they would know certain things. Actually, first of all, he, he prays that they would be able or that they would be strengthened, but that they would be strengthened to know certain things. Now, this seems a bit strange to us, if we're honest, because I think most of us, we think, well, the first step is knowing the stuff. If we know the facts, then we can move on to being certain things and living it out. But the kind of knowing that Paul's talking about here, he's not talking about knowing the basic facts of the faith. He's already assuming that they know those basic facts of the faith. The kind of knowing that he's praying for them is a deeper, richer kind of knowing that's only going to come with mature Christian faith. He's not praying that they just give assent to some facts. This is the sort of understanding that most of us aren't going to get in our faith early on. We need some experience and some time committed walking with the Lord before we're going to understand these realities of our faith. 
That's why Paul prays, first of all, for those things of inner strength and the rooted and establishedness that he's looking for. Because Christians are going to need those things in order to last long enough in their walk with the Lord and weather enough storms that they will get to the place where they can really comprehend and contemplate these deeper realities of their faith, this deep, deep knowing of God. So he prays that they would know a couple of things. He prays that they would know the width and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. So he prays that they would know this, or or even better, some translations have comprehend, but the idea is really that they would grasp it, that they would take hold of this. Again, not just knowing in the sense of knowing facts. Now, what is it that they're trying to get to the length and and depth and width and height and the dimensions of? Now, depending on your translation, again, some might supply God's love or Christ's love. Paul just kind of leaves it hanging there as to what the actual object is, that you would know the length and width and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Now, whether it's Christ's love or his power, maybe grammatically is in doubt, but logically we know that God's power is supremely demonstrated in his love, right? Our culture likes to think of power in terms of force, in terms of might, military might, or financial power, any of that. But as I said earlier, power in the sense of the kingdom is displayed always in love. In the sacrificial love of Christ. God's power and God's love are intimately connected. How do we comprehend that? Right? How do we, Paul even says that, that you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What do we even do with that when we, we're supposed to know something that's so mind-blowing we can't actually figure it out? Well, Paul, even in the book of Philippians, admitted that he wasn't there yet and he was still pressing on toward the goal for the prize and I think we shouldn't expect anything different in ourselves. We certainly won't come to the end of this or fully comprehend it in this life. And if I understand correctly, even eternal life is not going to be sufficient to, to figure it all out. But what else would you have wanted Paul to pray? Lord, I pray that the Ephesian Christians, I know we'll never get there. May they low like 3 to 5% of the love of Christ. That'd be sufficient. Like, what else would you want him to pray? Do you want him to just pray a small prayer? Do we want to pray small prayers for one another? Or do we want to pray big prayers that we actually would know and comprehend God's love and not just be content with a measly little amount? Again, we need to remember that this kind of knowing is a gift from God. Yes, careful study of the scripture is necessary for understanding right? Gathering together for worship is important. The spiritual disciplines certainly help us in our walk and in our comprehension of God. But first and foremost, any real appreciation of the magnitude, the ultimate size of God's love for us has to be revealed, has to be given to us. We have to be given the eyes to even catch a glimpse of this. And that comes as a gift from God. And so we pray for it. Paul's final request here is kind of a summary one, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Of course, we know that only in Christ does all the fullness of God dwell. Scripture tells us that. 
But being filled with the fullness of God by his spirit is both what makes any of these other things possible, right? The rootedness and the establishment, the the knowing of Christ. Being filled with God through his spirit makes this possible, but it's also the continuing result of these things being realities in our life. You see, it's, it's, it's like what we might call a virtuous cycle. Being filled with God's spirit leads us to having these other things as more of a reality in our life, the rootedness, the establishedness, the being strengthened in our, inner, in our inner person. Those things in turn lead us to being more filled with God and him taking up further residence in our hearts and, and working through those things that need to be worked on. Most of us probably ate way too much or, or at least more than we needed to last weekend at Thanksgiving. No matter how much you ate on any one given occasion, you know, maybe, maybe you cut back, it's Christmas or whatever, and you spend January cutting back a little bit, exercising a little more, trying to make up for that week or two over Christmas. But no matter how much you eat in, on one occasion or over a short season, you still need to go on eating in order to keep your body nourished. Maybe you don't need to eat more at 8 o'clock on, on Sunday or Monday evening, Maybe you kind of go into that turkey coma, laying on the couch watching the Rough Riders. If you were watching yesterday, I certainly forgive you if you fell asleep. Um, Enough of that. So maybe you don't feel like you need to eat more at 8 o'clock on Thanksgiving Day, because you're stuffed. But you're going to need to eat some more at some point to nourish your body, right? Living your life, just working and studying, playing sports, chasing the kids around, going to and fro and running errands and all the things you do, it burns calories. And so you have to take in more to to feed your body and to do the things you need to do. That's just basic human anatomy and biology and, and how our body is created to work. We need to be filled up continually, to keep being topped up in order to just get on with our daily tasks. Living the spiritual life is the same. Right? We need to continue to take in nourishment. We might get filled up a whole lot at, at some, some event, uh, camp, whatever it is. We can all think of those times where we've been filled up, where we just left feeling like, whoa, I've, so much has happened and I just, I'm on fire for the Lord. We think of those events. We remember those events. They might be milestones in our life, but they're not permanent. You still need to keep being filled up on an ongoing basis to continue your walk of faith. Just like physical walking burns calories and you need to fill yourself back up, spiritual walking needs the same kind of refilling on a regular basis too. Of course, the difference is that eating and digestion are pretty much automatic processes. They just happen. And given the society that most of us live in, we never really have to worry too much about whether there's going to be food there. You go to the grocery store and there it is. You go, go to the dining hall, maybe you complain about the quality of the food, but it is at least there. I was there on Thursday and kind of took a look at the soup there and went, I'm just going to close that lid there and have something else, right? But the food is there. It's there for the eating, and you don't really have to worry that much about it. You eat, you digest, your body is nourished. Spiritual nourishment isn't so automatic. It requires usually a fair bit more effort to actually make that happen. That's why Paul prays so fervently for it. 
That's why he prays for it before he prays for anything else. That we would actually be diligent in doing the things in our life that we need to do in order to keep that spiritual nourishment coming in and to keep it actually doing what God intends it to do in our lives. It's a gift of God. So what does this mean for us as we seek to be the family of faith? First, I think it sets an example that we really need to pray for one another, not just for the mundane things of life, you know, right? Exams and sickness, tiredness, relationships, whatever. Those are good things to pray for. But we need to be diligent in praying for the deeper things, the fundamentals of our faith to be more and more real and active and obvious and evident in our lives. We should pray these things for ourselves and we should be diligent in praying them for one another and encouraging one another in these areas. If we really got a hold of these things, if we really took hold of the way Paul is praying here and we really got excited about praying this way for one another, it would transform the way we pray. And of course, not only would it transform the way we pray, if the prayers were answered, that would also transform the way that we live. I know it would transform how I pray, for sure. Second, it should expand our vision of what God wants to do in our midst, right? Are we content with a Jesus who just kind of loves us in a, in a vague sense, wants us to be nice, is kind of there for us if we feel a bit out of our depth or we're a little, little lonely or a little sad today. Oh yeah, Jesus is there and he'll be our friend and help us to get through. Who basically just wants us to be comfortable. Or is our burning desire to really know the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus who was incarnate as, as the man Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God who walked this earth, who gave himself to die on our behalf, who was buried, who rose again, who is interceding for us at the Father's right hand, who's coming again someday. Is that the Jesus that we really are excited about knowing? That's, that's a Jesus that is worth knowing. That's something to get our hearts actually stirred up and get us out of bed in the morning. That's why Paul prays the way he does. That's why he spends the majority of his words praying that they would actually know and love and get excited about this Jesus. Following from that, right, do we really want to know the real Jesus? Do we really dare to believe the the final words of this passage? Verse 20, where he he says, To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Do we really dare to believe that, that God might want to do more than we can ask or even imagine? Immeasurably more? than all we ask or imagine, right? These are, these are big, kind of vision-stretching words. I don't know what specifically we ask or imagine is or is not possible. But I do know that if, if we're typical, if you're like me, if we're like most of us are, the, the things that we might imagine that God might want to do in our lives personally or in our midst as a body 
are not kind of almighty God-sized things. They're probably pretty small things. Probably pretty small-sized imagining. So think about it. That, that sin that you keep coming back to, that you say, yeah, I'm struggling with that, but really you just mean I'm living in defeat. I've just resigned myself Do you dare to imagine that, no, maybe God actually is powerful enough to do a work in your life that would free you from that and give you victory over it? Do you imagine, are you daring to imagine that God might do something about that in your life, deliver you from that? That relationship that's just tragically broken and you don't know what to do with it. Do you dare to imagine that God might bring reconciliation Forgiveness. The lack of joy or or direction in your life. Do you dare to imagine that God might have something bigger and better for you than than your current reality that you're living in where you just feel defeated and, and like you're accomplishing nothing in your faith or just in life in general? Do you dare to believe that he might have something bigger for you? This is a call to look at what we're currently imagining And if it's way down here, to lift our eyes. That's the the knowing of Christ that surpasses knowledge, right? This is an expanded vision of what might actually be possible. What he might even be calling us to. Dare we to imagine that God is calling us to something bigger and better? Not Not in the sense of bigger and better as our world usually conceives of it in terms of money and popularity and influence and all those things, but bigger and better, a sense of joy and excitement and holiness and fruitfulness than we're currently contented with. I think we must dare. I think we must dare because Paul put these words down and wrote them to Christians not that much different than us. They just lived a long time ago. They had all the same struggles and realities in their lives as we do today. And he wrote to them and prayed for them that they would dare to imagine what God might do for them. And so we must do the same thing as well. And so frequently, uh, we end our, our, the message portion of our sermon by praying together. And I think that certainly is a worthwhile thing to do. But rather than, than praying my own words, uh, I think it's suitable to read this again, read the words that Paul wrote, read God's words to us, but read them as a prayer. So what I'm going to do is to replace uh, where he talks about you. I'm going to pray us so that we can all be incorporated into this. We're all going to pray this together. And Paul does go so far as to say that he prays this on his knees. And I know some of you may not be able to, to take that posture just because of mobility and health issues. But for those of you that can and would be willing to do so, uh, I would ask us to... It says it in Scripture, so why don't we actually get serious about it and actually do it? You guys, you don't have enough room. That's okay. You can, you can kneel in your hearts. But for those of us that can actually kneel with our bodies, I would encourage us to do that. I will do it as well. This shows that we're serious about what we're praying for, right? We're not just praying because you're obligated to pray at the end of the sermon so that the choir can 
get back up there. We're praying because we desperately want God to answer this prayer that these things would be real in our lives. Will you pray with me? For this reason, we bow our knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant us to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If I'm not mistaken, we are going to sing about the depth of God's love for us.